Hey, good morning, RCC. It's so good to see all of you. Man, I love being back in Florida. I love being back at RCC. Uh, thanks for having me, um, which is weird. You didn't all vote, but thanks anyway. Um, it's, uh, it's real intimidating when Paul asks you to come and kick off a series, What God is Really Like. Um, if anybody would like to take my place, feel free. Um, it's a hard kind of question. What, what is God really like? Um, uh, just let me ask you a question. I know a lot of you are watching on screens and stuff. And that's okay. You're going to play along. Um, do me a favor. If you feel comfortable, you don't have to do it if you want to. But uh, do me a favor if, you feel, if you're okay with it. Uh, raise your hand if you would say that you grew up and are a churched, kind of churched person. You've been in church for a long time. Okay. All right, cool. All right, I see all you guys at other locations. Fantastic. Okay, all right, hands down. I'm just kidding, I can't see you, but it'd be awesome. Okay, now, this is a harder question if you feel okay. How many of you would say that you did not grow up a church person? Like, church is a little bit newer for you. I mean, it's been a few years, maybe a few days or like 10 minutes, you know? Uh, how many of you would say not really a church person growing up, but like, like, I'm okay with it right now. Be proud of it. Be real proud if you don't mind. Okay, all right. These are the people with less baggage. That's amazing. Okay. Cool. I, I'm a church person. Like, I'm church church, like super churched. I, um, I, I'm 47. I've been in church for 47 years. I, plus nine months. I mean, I was, wasn't conceived in church, but it wasn't long after I was there. And I, I'm telling you, like, our family is awesome. I became a Christian at the age of seven. Uh, I was baptized at 12, like Sunday school, big people church is where I learned to read the hymnal and draw is where I got good at art because um, I couldn't listen, but uh, my mom wanted to keep me quiet. Um, I went on Monday night every once in a while. We did visitation. It was terrible. It was horrible at it. But my favorite part of church growing up, maybe this is you if you're a church person. For me, especially as a kid, my favorite part of growing up was Wednesday night. Wednesday night was awesome, especially when I was in middle school, high school. Wednesday night was just the jam. Lots of reasons for that. Uh, one, there was unlimited mac and cheese and sweet tea. It was crazy. It was so good. Also, uh, on Wednesday nights, that's where all my friends were. And then that's also where the girls were. And it's where the girls were. So, uh, you know, Wednesday night was, was pretty awesome. In middle school, you know, I didn't talk to the girls, but I looked at them. You know, I knew they were there. And then in high school, I really loved it because my girlfriend was there. Uh, I started dating my girlfriend who became my wife uh, when we were in 10th grade. And so we go to church together. So we had a lot of great experiences together at church. It was like an extra date night for us because our parents were like, you can't go out all the time. You know, we had limited, you can't, you know, you couldn't spend every hour together, you know, even though we were so in love. So Wednesday night didn't count. Church hours didn't count. So we were there, you know, mac and cheese, girlfriend, sweet tea, friends. It was amazing. So one Wednesday night, I'm 15, one Wednesday night we're there, uh, church has ended, we're uh, doing what most uh, high school kids on Wednesday night do, we're loitering when it's over, and we're uh, standing just outside the youth group building on the sidewalk, and it's like a group of us, me, my girlfriend, several other friends standing around, and we're just kind of waiting, we're all like 15-ish, we're waiting on our dad, you know, the mom to come pick us up. So we're standing there, and then out of the corner of my eye, I see this pastor, the associate pastor of the church, and he's kind of walking our way. Now, I know this guy because three years ago, when I was 12, he baptized me. He dunked me underwater. You tend to remember those people, right? So I see him walking towards me, and I'm like, oh, maybe he's going to say hello, or maybe he's just, you know, going to his car. So he, he walks up to us, and... He, he kind of gets real close. Now, you remember being 15. Some of you are younger. You, you're, you're not too far away from that. Like, you remember, like, you know, like when an adult walks up to you and you're a teenager, it can be a little intimidating, especially when he's like a pastor, you know, when he's dunked you underwater. He could have killed me, right? So, like, he's walking up to me and he sees me 
And he looks right at me and I think, oh, cool. You know, he's gonna say hello. Well, he walks right up to me and, 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 he, and he's real close, it felt like. And he, he says, son, I need you to come over here with me for a minute. Now, he's not my dad. So when, when a guy like that calls you son, you know, it doesn't really lead to many good experiences. So, so we walk over about 10 feet. Now, granted, my friends are, you know, heard this. They're, they're you know, wondering what's going on, you know, what did Gavin do, you know, this time, or I don't know, right? So I, I walk over with this guy. We're about 10 feet away and he turns around. And once again, he says, son, he says, I, I saw how close you were standing beside that girl. And I know what you were thinking. Now, I gotta be honest, that didn't sit well with me. Um, I was embarrassed, I felt like he was calling me out, like my friends saw me getting in trouble, right? I didn't like that he was judging me, even though he was probably right, if I'm honest, I was 15, you know? I was either thinking of my girlfriend or thinking about food. I mean, 50-50 shot, he's right. But it was so frustrating. And I turned around in that moment, you know, and, and, and I have a couple of spiritual gifts, sarcasm being one, and so I, I look at him at 15 and I, and I say to him, I, I say, really, you know what I was thinking? He said, do you know what I'm thinking now? He said, I don't really appreciate your tone. I said, you don't appreciate my tone? Are you, are you kidding me? Like, the, I, I was so angry. You know how you're just so angry, you don't know what to say, like steam's coming out of my ears. I walk back to my, to my group, right? They're all like, what's going on? I'm like, don't worry about it. I grab my girlfriend's hand in front of him, right? And, and I look at her, and I was like, Chantel, kiss me right now. And she's like, no, yeah, it's weird. And I'm like, okay, it was a good try. It was 15, you know, it was like, good try. Because I just want to stick it to the guy. Like, I just want to just rub it in his face, you know? Luckily, my dad pulls up within like 10 seconds. Get in the car, slam the door. He's like, how was church, you know? He said, it was, I don't even talk about it. We get home, open the door, go inside. My mom, how was church? I'm like, don't, don't even talk about it. So my dad's like, hey, seriously, you know, what's wrong? I tell him the whole story. At the end of the conversation, look at my dad. I say, dad, I am never ever going back to that church. I'm never going back. My dad's real wise. He knows me really well. He's known me my whole life, right? He knows me really well. At 15, he knew that when I said that, I meant it. And if he pushed, it might create an even you know, bigger problem. And he didn't. And here's what's incredible. I'm 47 now, right? 47. I have never set foot on the property of that church since that Wednesday night when I was 15. Not, not a single time. If you were to ask me, like, how do non-Christian, how do non-church people, whatever, how do they describe church? Like, if they had to pick one word to describe church, I'd encourage you for a second. Like, if you could pick one word to describe church, especially if you grew up and had early church experiences like me, one word. I wish that I could choose words like loving or gracious, helpful, kind, there were moments that felt that way, but if I had to pick one word, I'm not sure that's the one word I could actually pick. As I think about all of my church experiences, all of my experiences with church people, with pastors, with all those things, I think the one word that I would have to pick, and it's the one word that most all people who aren't church people pick when they think about the church, is the word against, against. It just seems like churches and church people are against so many things. I made a list of these. I was gonna read the whole list, but it's like an hour and a half long. So I'll give you a condensed version. When I think about the church that I grew up in, we were against so many things. Uh, we were against dancing of all kinds. I can understand that. I slow danced in middle school. I, I was against that too, right? We were against dancing. We were against music. 
uh, except for Sandy Patty, but then we were against her for a while, but then she came back around, we were for her again. Um, we were against music. I, I remember, I don't know if you ever had an experience like this. We, we actually got to go to a music burning party. I don't know if you've ever done one of these. Um, I, I remember thinking, this is the re most ridiculous thing we're ever gonna do at youth group. We're supposed to bring our like evil devil music and burn it. And I remember thinking when that, you know, on the way to this thing, I'm like, this is so ridiculous. If I burn this Def Leppard tape, I gotta go buy it again tomorrow. <laughs> right? Like, why would you ever burn, pour some sugar on me, right? It's a song about sweet tea. We had it every Wednesday night. Like, what is wrong with Def Leppard, my favorite band? So, I, re I actually went to this burning thing. I didn't burn my tape. I was, no way, I didn't have enough money to buy another one. And so, I went to the thing, I remember this guy threw a Metallica CD in the fire. I was like, ooh, Metallica, you know? And I <laughs> tried to get it real quick because I didn't have that CD, it was awesome. Um, we were against that. We were against premarital anything, fill in the blank. This is premarital stuff, we were against it. Um, my youth group uh, pastor, <laughs> he, he claims, he claims he never even held hands with his girlfriend fiance until their wedding night. I remember thinking, even as a 14, 15 year old, bro, you are in for a really great night. Like, if you've never even held hands with her, like, this is gonna be spectacular, you know? But he, he was so over the top. You know, we were against companies for a long time. I remember, and I don't even know why, I was a kid for the most part. We were against JCPenney's, we were against uh, Lowe's and Home Depot. So if you needed to fix something, you were just totally in trouble, you know? <laughs> Uh, UPS, I guess shipping, I mean, I don't know why. We were against them, PBS, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts. We were against places, we're, this is happening right now, uh, for, don't, don't get offended, but we were, I remember as a kid, we were against Disney. I remember as a kid coming home, but my parents being against Disney, uh, not my parents, but like people in, my, in our circle were against Disney. I remember thinking, why in the world would you be against the most magical place on earth? Like, did you vomit on Space Mountain? Like, what's, what's, what happened? You know, why are we so angry at Disney? You know, we should talk a lot more about that later because we shouldn't be as much. Anyway, uh, we were against Oreos for a while because they're fattening, I guess. I don't know, they're delicious. Cheerios, we were against them. Uh, Muppets, they were my favorite thing to watch as a kid, but I remember some parents were anti-Muppets, I don't understand. We were against some dolls, some, some things like uh, toys, Barbies, we were against that. We were against Cabbage Patch dolls for a while. Um, I think it's because of the birthing and the cabbage, I don't know, but we were, we were against that. Here's the point, right? I mean, we were against so many things, so many things. I remember thinking as a kid, like, boycotting must be a part of the crucifixion, like, it's boycott stuff, like, it was against stuff. And it's really kind of how we behaved. We were just against things. Now here's the really good news, right? We have come so far. You know, I'm just kidding, we're, we're probably worse. <laughs> like think about it, you know, we, we may not be boycotting stuff as much publicly, but I don't know that we're known for being for things as much anymore. I mean, really right now, I think right now the church, the church is known more for what we are against than what we are for, maybe right now more than ever. The church and church people, Jesus followers, we just tend to be known so much more for what we are against than the things that we are for. And, and having worked in ministry for so long, I've had the really honor, the pleasure of sitting with lots and lots and lots and lots of people who have walked away from church or who are walking away from faith. And you begin to have conversations about why they're walking away, what's the hang up, what's the issue. You never really hear Jesus as a problem. You hear a lot of church people churches, pastors, Christians, experiences with those people, those seem to be the biggest problems. 
and, and benefit of the, of the doubt. I, I think Christians and churches and pastors overall, I think they mean well, even though if they're mean about it, I think they mean well often. And, and I'm not even in any way suggesting that we as church people should be for everything. Like there's nothing we should be against. That's ridiculous. There are lots of things that we should be against. In fact, we can lump all of those things into one category, sin. We should be against sin. You know, you know what sin is, right? Sin, sin is anything that works against what God is working for in your life or in the world around you. That's what sin is. Anything that works against what God is working for. And we should be against sin. Here, here's the problem though, right? Sin's a big deal, right? Sin separates you from God. He's a holy, perfect God. When we sin, we work against him in our lives and the lives of others. It separates from him. It's such a big deal to God that he sent his son to pay the price for your sin so that you wouldn't have to be separated anymore. That's a big deal. God takes sin seriously, and we should too. But, but here's the problem we have typically with sin, right? We wanna take it seriously when it's somebody else's sin, and we wanna give ourselves grace when it's ours, right? You know? It's the person, don't be offended by this, but, or maybe you should, I don't know, maybe it's helpful, but it's the person who's like 75 pounds overweight who won't talk at all about gluttony, who wants to talk all about your stuff. It's what we do as Christians. It, we, we, we become hyper-focused on the things that we don't struggle with and we're real judgmental about it, but we're not so judgmental to ourselves. And we don't want anybody else calling our mess out, but we really wanna call their mess out. It's kind of how we behave as church people. In a way, it's almost like we think of ourselves as the world's big brother. It's like, it's like we're the big brother. It's our job to catch people, to lord it over them, to make sure they're following the rules. And, you know, big brothers can be kind. They can be helpful. They also always win. I'm one, I know, right? Big brothers can be difficult. This isn't a new problem. This has been around since, well, religion has been around. Religious people really like lording their religion over others and they like holding everybody else accountable, even if they're not gonna do themselves this way. 2,000 years ago, there was a group of people who were really big brothering in the religious community. It was called, they're just called the Pharisees. You may have heard of these people. The Pharisees are like the religious big brothers of the first century. Their entire job was to follow the law of God as they interpreted it and understood it, and then make sure you do too. That's their job. And, and, and we, we kind of give these people a hard time, and in some cases we should. I mean, they were... Kind of difficult people. I mean, they hated Jesus so much they crucified him and they deserve a little bit of razzing, right? But they were crazy zealous for God. I mean, they were trying their best to follow God in the way they thought was right. So it isn't all bad, but they were getting it wrong. And they had a real problem with Jesus because Jesus loved everyone, no matter what they just did. Like Jesus treated everyone fairly, lovingly, and these people, they didn't know what to do with it. It made them so mad because Jesus began to gain a following based on grace and based on his wisdom. And of course, they didn't think he was the Messiah. He wasn't the son of God. They just saw him as this rabbi who's a rabble rouser who's creating problems for them. So everywhere Jesus goes, crowds would form and they would be there. And the Pharisees were there to try to catch Jesus, trip him up, and eventually they falsely accuse him and they have him crucified. That's the Pharisees. So there's this moment where Jesus is hanging around with a bunch of really bad people, at least the Pharisees thought. And the Pharisees are there again, trying to catch him, trying to trip him up. There's this guy named Luke. 
Luke was a physician. He became a journalist. He wrote two books in our Bible. He didn't know he was doing that at the time, but he wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts. So he interviewed everybody he could interview to find out everything he could about Jesus. And he wrote an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And then he followed it up with what happened right after the resurrection. That's the book of Acts. Well, in the book of Luke, there's this incredible story that Luke tells us about where Jesus is with these people, the Pharisees are there, and this incredible teaching happens. Here's how Luke starts the conversation. He says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now, just quick pause. Um, The tax collectors and the sinners, the sinners were bad people. They were awesome compared to tax collectors. I mean, these... Pharisee, Jewish kind of people hated tax collectors. I mean, I doubt any of you like write love letters to the IRS, but these people are amazing compared to the tax collectors. The tax collectors were Jewish people who were traitors working for Rome, gathering way more tax from you than they had to, keeping the rest, you know, buying nice cars and shoes and stuff, right? Meanwhile, meeting their quota. I mean, they were stealing from, 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 from you as a Jewish person. I mean, they were horrible people. They were horrible people. Jesus is with them all the time. And of course, the Pharisees hated that. They hated that. It's amazing though, everywhere Jesus went, you found these people. I mean, everywhere Jesus went, people who were nothing like him, not like him, liked him. It's incredible. And the reason, the reason is because Jesus actually loved them and they sensed it, they felt that. The people who were nothing like Jesus felt that Jesus was for them. And so they loved him. They wanted to be around him. Now they didn't wanna be around the Pharisees, but they wanted to be around Jesus. Of course, in this moment, there's all these bad people gathering around. The Pharisees, they don't like it. They're, they're kind of in the back of the room, right? They're outside looking in at all this stuff and they, they didn't wanna be near these tax collectors. They wouldn't be caught dead near these sinners. So they're kind of at, at, at arm's length from them, okay? But, but the Pharisees, Luke says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered. You ever been around people with mutterings like, yeah, 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 like in the background, that's what they're doing. This man, Jesus, this man, he welcomes sinners and he even eats with them. Now, Jesus being, you know, God and all, he knows what they're thinking without even hearing them. He knows they're muttering in the background. So Jesus thinks this is the perfect time to tell a couple of stories. Jesus always taught in, in stories, we call them parables. They're just these made up stories with eternal or heavenly meanings. In, in every one of the stories, God is one of the characters. He's usually the good one, right? And other people in the story represent people like us in, in, in the made up story. So Jesus decides to tell three stories. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. Maybe you've heard it. Jesus says this, suppose, suppose there's a shepherd with a hundred sheep and one of the sheep wanders off because sheep are kind of dumb. They tend to do that. If the sheep wanders off, wouldn't the shepherd, Jesus says, wouldn't the shepherd leave the 99 in harm's way with prey around to go and seek and save what was lost, the lost sheep. And if he finds the lost sheep, he, he would cradle it gently on his shoulder and carry it back to reunite it with the flock and he would celebrate, the shepherd would, because something of value that was once lost has now been found. The, the, the point of that parable was simply this, that God is for those that are far from him. That was the point. Jesus looks at the crowd. He says, let me, let me tell you another story. He creates another one, the parable of the lost coin. He says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins 
And everybody immediately went, oh gosh, that's a lot of money. I mean, they didn't have one extra silver coin. And, and this woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. What would she do? And of course they all think, uh, lose her mind, you know? And Jesus says, yeah, she, she tears her house up. She's ripping sofa cushions apart. She's looking everywhere. And when she finds the one lost coin, she's so excited. She invites everybody in the neighborhood over and they throw a huge party. Why? Because something of immense value that was once lost has now been found. We have nothing else to do but celebrate. Point of the story was simply this. God is for those that are far from him. And then Jesus says, let me tell you one more story. It's probably the most famous parable Jesus ever taught. It's the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. Jesus says, suppose there's a father who has two sons and, and, and the younger son comes to the father and he says, hey dad, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been real and, and it's been fun, but it, it hadn't been real fun. And you know, to be honest, you're worth more to me dead than alive. Now, I know when you die, I'm gonna get my inheritance, but I don't really wanna wait. I mean, how long are you gonna make it? This is ridiculous, right? Just go on. So if you don't mind, I'd like to go ahead and have my share of the inheritance right now because I'm ready to get on with my life, get on with living. <laughs> I, I, if your kid did that to you, I mean, after you scissor kicked him in the throat, right? I mean, it, it would be so offensive to you. Go back 2,000 years in this culture of honor, where fathers are more revered and there's this relational thing happening with sons. I mean, <laughs> the Pharisees are listening to this story. They're all like, Woo there is no way I would ever do that. No way I would ever do that. Well, Jesus continues the story. He says, well, the dad, the dad says, okay. He, he agrees. He gives the younger son his share of the inheritance. And the younger son, celebrating, trots off to like, you know, Jerusalem, Vegas and lives it up. Like, you know, what happens in Jerusalem, Vegas doesn't stay there, right? But he is living it up. He's doing everything you're not supposed to do, like six times, over and over. I mean, all the things, right? I mean, he's having bacon. I mean, you're not supposed to do that if you're Jewish, you know? prostitutes, debauching his way. I mean, it's like he's just really having a great time, you know? Of course, he runs out of money because you can't live that way. He runs out of money. He finds himself in the worst place he could possibly find himself. He's homeless. The only place for him to sleep is in the pig sty with the pigs and he's eating their food. And pigs were so offensive. They were unclean, the most unclean animal to Jewish people. So the thought of sleeping with pigs, much less touching them, you know? Of course, the whole audience listening to Jesus is like, oh, this is so terrible. The, the younger son begins to think, gosh, the servants in my dad's house have a bed to sleep in and human food to eat, not the pig food. Maybe if I go home and beg my father to forgive me, he'll at least let me serve in the household with the other servants. So he begins thinking through what he wants to say and he starts walking home. Have you ever been in trouble just for a second and, and you're walking home and you know your mom and dad are really gonna be mad at you and you start making up the story like you're rehearsing what you wanna say? That's what he's doing. He's rehearsing his story as he walks home. He's gonna beg his dad to just give him a bed so he can be treated like a servant. Jesus says, but... But while he, the younger son, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. 
It's an incredible moment. The sinners and the tax collectors are sitting there and their minds are blown because they know that the father in the story represents God. Of course, the Pharisees aren't so excited. The, the point of the story was simply this, that, that God is for those that are far from him. Same point, just, just for a second. If you're not a Christian, you're not a church person, you're not a, a Jesus follower, I, I am so glad, I am so glad that you are here today. Jesus is glad you're here today because he taught these ideas for people just like you. And, and I know you don't really know what God is like and you're not sure what God is like. This is what God is like. God is not hoping you will come back so he can pay you back. He has been standing, listen, on the front porch of your heart, your entire life waiting for you waiting for you, like the father did. Every single day his son was gone, he stood and hoped and waited and prayed that he would return, not to pay him back, but to embrace him, to welcome him. That's what God is wanting to do with you. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I mean, I, I didn't sleep with pigs, but there was that spring break. I mean, I gotta be honest, this maybe is scary. God knows about spring break and he doesn't care. He knows. You, know, you thought you left God here when you went there? That ain't how it works. He went with you. He knows everything you've ever done and he loves you anyway. He knows everything and all he wants to do is embrace you. That's it. That's the heart of God. That's what God is actually like. Now, if you're a Christian, that's a really important thing to remember because we can forget that. Of course, if we go back to that moment 2,000 years ago, Jesus and all of these sinners and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are in the back of the room and they're still muttering. You know what they're thinking? They're thinking, well, I know one thing for sure. I'm not the father, that's God, but I'm sure not that younger son. I would never do that. I would never do that. And Jesus goes, yeah, I know you would never do that. That's why the story isn't over. There's another character in the story, religious people. And that character might be you. It might be you. Meanwhile, Jesus says, meanwhile, the older son, the religious people, the older son was in the field. And you know what he was doing? Doing what older sons do, like me, the right thing. He's doing the right thing. He's in the field. He didn't ask for his inheritance. He's doing what he was supposed to do. By the way, now he's doing twice the work because his loser little brother ran off. He's got twice the work to do, and that's what he's doing. He's doing the right thing. That's what older brothers do, right? Meanwhile, the older brother is in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and he heard dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? The servant says, your younger brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother goes, he killed what? The calf that I have been fattening for my graduation party? <laughs> and he killed... He, my brother, he's back. The older brother, the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him, but he answered his dad, look, all of these years, I have been slaving for you, God, and, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Remember three weeks ago, I just wanted to have some friends over, watch Netflix, have some kebabs. You wouldn't even let me do that. 
And now you're killing the fattened calf, like the, the big deal, the celebration for that, for that guy. But, but when this son of yours, who has, by the way, dad, squandered your property with, hello, prostitutes, he's a bad guy. When he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the dad says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And literally in this case, everything the dad has at this point is for this older son, everything. But we had to celebrate and we had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. You know what? The first point of the story is really important, right? God is for those that are far from him. It's really important. But there's a second point to the story. And there's a second point we tend to forget. If you're a Christian, you're a Jesus follower, you're a church person, it's the second part that we struggle to remember and live out the most. Here's the second point of the story. That you can't be for God while living against those who are far from God. You can't be for God if you are also actively, even unintentionally, right, against the things that God is for, against the people who God is for. It's this second point that we struggle with so much. And if we really wanna figure out what God is like, one of the best things we can do is start treating people like the father and not like the big brother. Our tendency is to be big brothers though. Our tendency is to lead with judgment. Our tendency is to point out problems, to not lead with compassion, instead to lead with conviction. Here's my assumption. My assumption is we don't wanna forget the second part. I think we as Jesus followers, as Christians, as church people, I think if we really just sat and reflected for a minute, we would say, yeah, yeah, I, I want to be like the father. I wanna, I wanna treat people like the father. If you wanna do that, I wanna give you some ways that you can do it. Actually, the story shows us exactly what it looks like to love people like the Father loves people, to treat people the way the Father treats people. Let me just give you a few things really quick I think that are critical to begin embracing if we actually want to get the second part of the story right. Here's the first one. Here's how we can be for what God is for. First thing, we can't get mad at lost things anymore. We just can't get mad at lost things including people. Never once in the story is the shepherd angry at the sheep who ran away. Never once is the woman cursing at the coin that was lost. Never once, no judgment. Not once did the father of the younger son punish the younger son, not once. The consequences were already there. He doesn't have another inheritance. He spent several months sleeping with pigs, not eating. I mean, he had had consequences, but not once was the father angry at things that are lost. If we want to be more like the father than the big brother, we just can't, we can't get mad at lost things. Here's the second thing, it's kind of connected in a way. Second thing, we, we can't expect lost people to behave like found people. I don't know why we do this, 
I don't know why we expect people who have never espoused to follow Jesus to live like they're following Jesus. By the way, for those of you that are Jesus followers, you aren't even that good at this all the time, right? I'm not good at it all the time. I basically fail to follow Jesus every time I'm at a four-way stop, every time. I don't know why it's so hard to figure out who got there first. Not that hard, you know? I mean, seriously, think about this. When you ask a non-Christian, hey, what do you think about Christians? You know, one of the first words that comes out of their mouth is hypocritical. You know why? Because we're asking them to live a life as if they've agreed to it and they haven't, while we're not even living the life that we have agreed to live. So we gotta quit doing that. We, We gotta start living like we actually are followers and we can't expect other people to do that too unless they decide to be a follower. Next thing, this is my favorite. We're just not gonna be concerned with guilt by association ever again, ever again. We are going to get out of our echo chambers, out of our Christian bubbles, and we are going to be like Jesus and hang around with sinners and IRS people. I'm just kidding, I don't know. But we're gonna be with the people that religious people don't like because God loves them. And the only way that they are going to find their heavenly father is by you. It's the only way. They're not gonna wander into a church. They're not gonna wander in to hope and help through the saving work of Christ. They're gonna find it through you, but only if you're friends with them and only if you know them and love them and have a relationship with them. When, you know, I've been a pastor now for a long time. I love playing tennis. I don't play as much now, but when I was living in this really big neighborhood and all these tennis teams, I would go to the tennis you know, center and I would say, hey, what's the worst tennis team here? And they would give me a name. I'm like, no, 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 not like that worst at tennis. Like what's the most heathen tennis team here? What's like the worst people, you know? And they would laugh and, you know, I was friends with the tennis you know, pro and he would say, well, these guys are, they're, they're, they're a piece of work. I'm like, okay, cool. I would join their tennis team. I wouldn't tell them what I did. They're like, hey, what do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, I speak and work at nonprofits. You know, that's what I do. But, because if you say you're a pastor, everybody freaks out, you know, especially heathens like that, you know? So I would play tennis with them. And like three months in, my tennis partner, I'm like, hey, Rob, you, you, what are you doing on Sunday morning? Why don't you come to church with me? I, he was like, you go to church? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I, I go occasionally. Like, Come, come with me on Sunday, like, because your marriage is a wreck. You have no idea how to parent your teenager. You hate your job, right? You're miserable. You're looking for hope. You're looking for help. I don't know. Maybe the church could help. Like, just come, you know? He would meet me. I'm telling you, I've done this 50 times. Rob would come, make up another name. They would come. They would meet me in the lobby. They were like, hey, what's up? I'm like, hey, come sit. I got a seat down front. They're like, oh, down front? That's weird. I'm like, well, you know, I got to sit. I need to sit down there today. They're like, oh, okay, cool. Why are you wearing a mic? That's weird. I'm like, don't worry about it, you know? (laughs) And then like the church service starts and I walk on stage and I can hear Rob going, oh, shit, you know? (laughs) Out loud. And I'm like, hey, what's up, Rob? You know? (laughs) Now, listen. And you know what I would do? After every person on my tennis team came to church, guess what I did? Any guesses? I changed tennis teams. <laughs> and I found the most worst group of people again and started doing it again. Like seriously, I'm not, and I was a pastor. You're not that yet, right? And I'm hanging around with the worst people I can find because they need hope and help through Christ. It's a big deal. So what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Here's what we're actually going to do. There's a bunch of things we gotta quit doing Here's the one thing we're going to do. 
And this is what Jesus did. Here's the one thing. We're just gonna help people and inspire them to follow Jesus. That's it. The only thing we're gonna be concerned about is inspiring people to follow Jesus. Now, if you grew up in a church like I did, where it was real legalistic and you can't do and you better do and you whatever, that's hard to get past. I totally understand it. And you probably have a little bit of that in you. So when you see this, you probably are thinking, okay, Gavin, that's just not sufficient. Because what about... And what about when they, and what about they live this way? And what about, what about, what about? I totally understand the whatabouts. I, I totally do. Guess who understands it better? And he guesses Jesus. Here's what I am convinced of. Not because of theory, I've seen it too many times. I'm 100% convinced, and I think you will be too if you do this. I'm 100% convinced if we can just inspire people to follow Jesus, Jesus will take care of everything else. Everything else will work out the way it needs to work out if people will just follow him. That's all we have to do. Now, I think all of us are smart enough to know this is a really, really big deal. But let me remind you why this is such a big deal. It's so important. And this should terrify you, by the way. If you're a Jesus follower, this should completely terrify you. See, we actually represent God to those who are far from him. That should scare you to death. When people find out that you are a Christian, that you are a, a follower of a heavenly father of Jesus, when they find that out, they are going to assume that God is like you because you are typically like the thing that you follow the closest. That should scare you. I wish somebody would have told me that a long time ago because I'm afraid I have big brothered way more people than I should have. I wonder what would have happened if I would have been the father in the story to those people, not the big brother. I can also tell you from personal experience how big of a deal this is for me. You know, I mentioned that I had that incredibly bad experience at church. And I know some of you have had way worse experiences than that. But for me at 15, it just hit the wrong way. And, and I mentioned I'd never been back to that church again, and, and I never did. I actually got home that night and thought, I'm never going back to church again. Why would I? If God is anything like that guy, who he's the pastor who baptized me, if God's anything like that, I don't even think I wanna have anything to do with God. I was out at 15, I was out. And then my, my girlfriend, the next day at school, we're talking, you know, I told her, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going back, you know? And she's real smart too, she's so wise. She, she didn't say, no, no, you have to. She was like, yeah, okay. And the next day she says, hey, by the way, my, my parents, you know, we, we all go to another church. Um, her dad was a pastor for a while. And she said, we go to this other church. It's a lot smaller, you know, it's not as cool. Um, but if, if you, maybe on Wednesday night, maybe we could go there because they have youth group there too. And I remember, I, and I first was like, nah, I'm good. I, I'm out. But then she said, no, let's just, you know, let's just try it. And I thought, well, you know, I'm thinking about her. I'm thinking about food. I'm like, okay, you know, like, so it's another Wednesday night with her, you know, whatever, you know. So the next Wednesday rolls around, we get in the car with her parents and her little brothers and we drive to this other church. And it is, it's smaller, it's not kind of, you know, it looks different. And we walk in to this youth group room. There's this guy standing there, James. I remember walking in, holding hands with her as clearly as I could. Because I wanted to see how everybody was gonna respond. James walks up to me. James is like the youth pastor. I'm like, I know, who, I, I know youth pastors. I know what he's gonna say, you know? Have you ever held hands with a girl, you know? So James walks up to me 
And, and he says, hey, are you Gavin? I was like, yeah, you know, yeah. He says, man, I'm so glad to meet you. Shakes my hand, you know, I'm so glad to meet you. He says, Chantel has told me all about you. And if she likes you, you must be pretty cool because she's amazing. I remember thinking, well, that's weird. You know, did you see I was holding hands? You know, so we sit down and, and we have like a little lesson, you know, like you do at youth group. The whole time I'm holding hands, arm around her, you know, I'm doing all the things and, you know, nothing. At the end of the night, James walks up to me. He was like, Gavin, I'm seriously so glad you came tonight. He goes, man, it is so good to meet you. He goes, I'm not kidding. You must be pretty great because Chantel's awesome. Her family's so cool. He was like, I hope I get to know you a little bit better. You know, anybody who Chantel likes, I sure would like to know more. If you ever, if you feel like ever you want to come back, man, let me know, you know, or, or if I can like take you to breakfast one day and like buy you as much chocolate milk and pancakes as you want. You know, when I'm 15, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, are you God? You know, so <laughs> at the end of the night, we, we, we go home. Chantel's like, what do you think? And I'm like, um, I, I don't know what to think. I'm like, that's so, it's just different, you know? So we went back the next week, went back the next week. We actually ended up going all through the rest of high school during college, we stay connected. When we got married three weeks after graduation from college, we started attending that church. I was a deacon in that church for a while. Listen, I'm not kidding. James White literally saved church for me. James White saved faith potentially for me because James White decided it was more important to treat a 15-year-old as if he was a father and not a big brother. That's all he did. He didn't confront me about any of the things I was getting wrong, and believe me, I was getting things wrong. He didn't try to convict me as if he was the Holy Spirit. He trusted that Jesus would do that. He just loved me really authentically well. And that's the opportunity we have. What is God like? People who are around you are wondering the same thing and they're gonna take their cues from what they experience on the other side of you. It's a massive responsibility. I think it's also an incredible opportunity to overpopulate heaven. But it's all gonna be in how we treat people. So do you wanna be a big brother? Or do you wanna be a father? It really is that simple. Here's my prayer for all of you at RCC is that you will be fathers and that people will experience the love of God through their experiences with you. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, oh my goodness, thank you so much for James White. <laughs> I mean, to think that I have been in ministry for so long and all that, I mean, I hated pastors. And now, and now I get to kind of be one. And it literally, it's because of James White. I'm so grateful for James, so grateful for his love and his heart. God, I pray that we will be James White in the life of people. I pray that we will be that kind of person to father and love people really, really well. Even when we want a big brother, I pray you give us grace and mercy to show grace and mercy to the people who need it the most. God, help us to love people the way that you do. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. 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 Hey, everybody on all our campuses, can you thank Gavin for just crushing it this morning? Wow, man. Oh. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ at one of our campuses and uh, one of our churches today and you heard this message, you, you got to walk out with the deepest conviction you probably ever had from a message in a long time, right? Oh my God. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, we hope you saw the heart of Jesus for you this morning. Absolutely. But here's some great news for all of you. And that is 
This week, you have the opportunity to begin applying what Gavin shared with us about having the heart of the Father for those who are lost. Think about this. Easter is only two weeks away. So here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a question I want you to think about as we approach Easter week. As Gavin said, God is for those who are far from him. So here's the question. Who is far from God, but is near to you? Who's far from God, but is near to you? In other words, who are those people that you care about? Who are those people that you work around? Who are those people you interact with? Maybe you're gonna cross paths with this week that you don't, that they really don't feel like that God is for them. God has put them in your life for a purpose, as Gavin said. So you get to represent that God is for them this week. And so this week, you especially have this extraordinary opportunity to invite them to an Easter service, either for them or their children to hear that God is for them. So we're gonna challenge you for the next two weeks to extend more invitations from yourself than ever has been from RCC. And we've made this really simple. When you leave today at any of our campuses, you're gonna find tables loaded with Easter invite gifts like this. These gifts are filled with treats. There are Easter invite cards for our Easter service, also for Easter jam for the children that is gonna be happening for Wombaland and Upstreet. And our challenge is that between now and Easter Sunday morning, you as a church, all three of our campuses, you will have done 10,000 personal invites in our community. That's how many gifts our students have put together this past week for us to invite people through. Now, some of you are sitting there go, 10,000? You're thinking, that's everybody? No, no, no. There are over 75,000 unchurched people within driving distance to all of our churches. So we want you to grab as many of these as you want, give them to people that you know don't attend a church regularly, take them to work to people and invite people you've been working with, give them to neighbors, hand them out to friends, tell them this is the Easter gift from you and your church and it's a simple way to invite them to help them understand that God is for them. So make some invitations this week. Now here's the thing, do not leave these as tips. unless you leave a 50 or $100 tip with it, right? But here, here's the deal. We want this to be a personal invitation. Now, here's why this matters so much. One invitation, it can lead to somebody's transformation. One simple invitation on your part, it can start them on a path or on a journey to tr be transformed on how they see God, know God, and experience God's love, as Gavin talked about this morning. So we've seen this happen hundreds of times around here. So grab some gifts, extend some invitations, Let's really help people see what God is really like by being for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for using Gavin to speak deeply into our hearts. God, there are so many people in our communities that really need to understand that God is for them. And I just pray that you will help us as a church to go beyond what we've ever gone before, to invite people, to reach out to people so that they can hear the good news that God is really for them, that God is standing looking for them to come home, not to pay them back, but to win them back, to embrace them. God, I thank you for this incredible opportunity to live out what we've heard. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks. Amen. Hey, everyone, pick up some gifts, do some invites. We'll see you next Sunday.
Cause sometimes those voices try to tell me I'm forgotten and I'm falling too far from his hand. 